So our text this morning is three chapters of Revelation. I'm just going to read the one. So Revelation 14 will be our scripture reading. And then as we go through the sermon, I will um, read certain sections of chapter 15 and 16. So Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for endurance of the, for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated On the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat, he who sat on the cloud, 
swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said, we're going to cover the three verses, three uh, chapters this morning, 14 through 16. I'm covering that much in one sermon because there's a lot of thematic repetition in the book of Revelation. Chapters 14 through 16 cover variations on themes that we have already covered in significant detail, so we're just going to skim over them and then dip down here and there and give a little more attention to uh, certain details that we either haven't seen before or or are particularly memorable or edifying. So in the last two chapters before chapter 14, so 12 and 13, there have been a lot of about the persecution of the saints. Chapter 12, the great dragon who symbolizes the the devil. He goes after the saints. In chapter 13, uh, the two beasts, which symbolize godless humanity, also makes war on the saints. Clearly, one of the realities of being a Christian in this world is that the devil and his human followers are opposed to us and are inclined to persecute us or to try to convince us in other ways to turn away from God and to join them in their rebellion against God. To be a Christian is to be under attack in one way or another from Satan and his demons and from his human followers. It's hard to be under attack all the time. And so the book of Revelation has lots of encouragements for Christians to endure, to stand fast, and to live in hope. So after the two chapters that describe how our enemies are seeking to defeat us, chapter 14 begins with a glimpse of the future blessedness of the followers of God. The first five verses of chapter 14 are a symbolic glimpse at the saints of God after their struggles in this life are over. Jesus sees, uh, John sees the Lamb who is Jesus. He is standing on Mount Zion, which is a symbol for the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. And the lamb, with the Lamb are 144,000 people. That number stands for the fullness of the people of God. That's how we know that this is a picture of the final state. All the followers of Jesus are there in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of God. They have Jesus' Father's name written on their foreheads, and that is the counterpart to the mark of the beast. And they're singing, they're worshiping, they're joyful, they are safe. 
What they're singing can only be learned by those who have been saved. And that, of course, is not different from in the here and now in that it takes supernatural grace to be able to see the glory of God and to truly understand and participate in the songs that we sing. The people, the 144,000, are described as being pure. The language is largely of sexual purity, but that is symbolic for comprehensive purity. They have been cleansed from their sins. They are holy and pure in the presence of God. They are referred to as the first fruits of God. In this context, the first fruits refers to the entire people of God. Later on in the chapter, we'll read about another part of the harvest, which has to do with God's judgment on the wicked. And so here the saints are the first, as the first fruits are the part of the harvest of humanity. They're the part of the harvest that has been redeemed and offered to God. So these, these words are an encouragement for the saints still struggling on earth. This is your destiny if you remain faithful to the Lord in the struggles of this life. And there's a very common perspective in the Bible. We are strengthened in the struggles of the present by promises of a glorious future. And here is one way to visualize that future. Doesn't mean that the final state will be one unending worship service. We're going to be living on a new earth and there will be lots of things to do. But it will all be offered to God in worship. We will finally glorify God in every part of our lives. And there's going to be a lot of singing of praises to God. Next, we have a section that describes three different angels with messages for the people on the earth. So we're moving back and forth through time in these various sections. We've just been thinking of the final state, but here we're brought back into the present The three angels and their messages, they're all gospel messages, which is about the way of salvation, but they clearly also include judgments on those who refuse to worship God. The emphasis in these verses is on warning, but implied in them is the offer of salvation for anyone who would repent. These angels with their messages are part of the unseen world we know from We know that in the plan of God, it is the church who has been called to bring the message of salvation and judgment to the world. These angels here may represent a supernatural help that the church receives in bringing God's message to the world. In any case, this is one of the realities of the spiritual warfare that the book of Revelation describes. There are a lot of warnings. Those who continue to resist God do so by rejecting warnings of what will happen to them if they do not repent. Through the warnings, God is giving people the opportunity to repent. Verse 12 is another call for the saints to endure. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The warnings of God about uh, Uh, the warnings of God's temporal and eternal judgments upon the unrepentant are also relevant for God's people. They're sounded in our 
hearing as we engage in the spiritual warfare that is the Christian life. There are all kinds of encouragements in the book of Revelation and in the Bible in general that draw us forward in the life of enduring faithfulness, but there are also these warnings of God's judgment upon the unrepentant. Those warnings are directed to others if we are walking faithfully with Jesus, but they're also for us. Part of God's message to help us to continue to endure. Both the promises and the warnings are there to help us to endure in the Christian life. Next, we have a precious promise in verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In blessed, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. It's a memorable saying that has comforted people of God throughout the ages. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Physical death is still a reality for the people of God. We know that we will one day die unless the Lord returns before that day. And we are constantly losing loved ones. We're familiar with funerals, and funerals are sad. Thinking about the fact that we must die is sad as well. There's a sadness that's part of living because of the reality of death. But there is real comfort in the face of death in the gospel. And this is one of the most precious expressions of that comfort. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. To be blessed is to experience true well-being that is rooted in God's favor. There's no true well-being apart from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that is expressed here by referring to the dead saints as those who die in the Lord. Those who are united to Christ by faith are blessed when they die. Those who die in the Lord experience the ultimate well-being. And that's the ultimate comfort. Any comfort that does not include blessedness after death <clears throat> is a very small comfort. Unbelievers comfort themselves in all kinds of ways in the face of the, the reality of death. But the comfort of the Christian message for believers is of a higher order altogether. Those who die in the Lord are blessed. They are truly better off than they were before their death. That is an incredible comfort when we lose loved ones who die in the Lord. And it is an incredible comfort as we consider the fact that every day that passes brings us closer to the day of our death. Two aspects of that blessedness are mentioned those who die in the Lord rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. Those who die in the Lord rest from their labors. That rest is not the rest of inactivity, but the rest of perfect peace and joy and satisfaction in relationship with God. In Matthew 11, Jesus promises to give rest to whoever comes to him. That promise is addressed to those who labor, 
and are heavy laden. Because of sin, our work can be difficult and frustrating. We, can, we are weighed down by the guilt of sin. We experience pain and sorrows and burdens. And we're helped in all of these areas in this life through the rest that Jesus gives to his people. But we will experience that rest in its fullness after this life when we experience the fullness of our salvation. Those who die in the Lord rest from their labors and also their deeds follow them. How we live in the here and now matters and will matter in the final state. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. It's part of the biblical teaching about rewards. We'll be rewarded in heaven for our good deeds. doesn't mean that we earn our way into heaven, but it does mean that the good deeds that we do as sinners saved by grace will be rewarded in the final state. And in that sense, our deeds follow us when we die. According to Jesus, his followers should rejoice when they are persecuted because of the reward that they will receive. Being faithful in persecution leads to great reward. Luke six twenty three, Jesus says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So there's this wonderful encouragement for believers in the midst of the book of Revelation, which has so much to say about the difficulties that Christians face in this life. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now, the last part of Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20, are a symbolic description of the second coming. Second coming is described as a harvest. Jesus is described as, quote, one like, the, like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. An angel comes to him, presumably with a message from God the Father, and tells him, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And then we read, so he who sat on the cloud (coughs) swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then we read of another angel commanding yet a third angel with a sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. The angel swings, the sickle gathers the grape harvest, and, quote, threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So there's some ambiguity here about who does what, but there's no question that the command to harvest comes from the throne of God. It is Jesus Christ is presiding over it, and clearly angels are involved as well. There are two parts to the harvest. While it's not explicit, it's likely that the first part refers to the harvest of the followers of Jesus, and the second part clearly refers to the harvest of the wicked. The imagery um, closely follows John the Baptist's introduction of Jesus in Luke three 
17, where he says of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The imagery is a little different, but the the message is the same. So the human race is pictured as a crop that will one day be harvested. There comes a time when the crop is ripe and when the reaping will take place and the the, the followers of Jesus will be harvested into the presence of God and the wicked will be harvested into the winepress of the wrath of God. The fact that there are only two final destinies for human beings is a theme that runs through the whole Bible and the imagery of these verses with the of a sickle swinging across the earth and to reap the final harvest is a memorable symbolic picture that powerfully conveys the great seriousness of what is at stake in the decisions that we make when it comes to following Jesus or rejecting him. Now verse uh, chapter 15 gives us another glimpse of the redeemed in heaven. They're identified here as... They are identified as those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. So these are followers of Jesus who had not succumbed in the war of the beast against them. They are those who remain faithful to Jesus in the persecution and in all the other ways that the beast has tried to tempt them to deny God. And these these saints are singing what the text calls the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, and this is what they sing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, the fact that uh, this is referred to as the Song of Moses recalls the Exodus story, and particularly the the Song of Moses recorded in Exodus 15, which worships God because of his mighty deeds of salvation and judgment in delivering his people from Egypt. Song of Moses and of the Lamb is significant because the saints are worshiping God for his mighty deeds, and confessing that God's ways are just and true. In the context of the book of Revelation, the saints in heaven are worshiping God for his mighty deeds of judgment upon the wicked, as well as his mighty deeds of salvation for his people. And this is a very important point. The emphasis in the Bible on the wrath of God against sin and sinners and his judgments upon the wicked is much greater. The emphasis in the Bible is much greater than, in the, than it is in the thinking and the worship of most Christians and most churches. Few of us reflect the Bible's emphasis in our thinking about God and in our worship of God. It's much more pleasant, of course, to Think of God's love and his mercy, and of course, biblical worship will rightly focus a great deal on the wonder of salvation in Christ. 
This is largely what the biblical story is about. But this song of Moses and of the Lamb requires that we ask of ourselves whether our worship truly reflects the biblical emphasis. The Bible as a whole, and the book of Revelation in particular, has an awful lot to say about God's judgment upon the wicked. And this song of Moses and of the Lamb is celebrating God's amazing deeds, which include his deeds of judgment and his justice and his truth. Then we have in the other parts of chapter 15 and 16, the last sequence of seven, which mostly has to do with the judgments of God on the wicked. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we have a sequence of seven seals, which are opened by the Lamb, who is Jesus. And then we have that sequence of seven angels blowing seven trumpets. And each time one of the trumpets blows, a great judgment is unleashed upon the earth. Here's the last of those sequences of seven in the book of Revelation. And this time John sees seven angels with seven plagues. And the seven plagues turn out to be seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Chapter 16 begins with a loud voice from the temple telling the angels to pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And the results on earth when the bowls are poured out is similar to the results on earth when the seven seals were opened and when the seven trumpets were blown. In this case, people experience painful sores, the sea becomes like blood, the rivers become blood, the sun is allowed to scorch people with fire, the kingdom of the beast is plunged into darkness. With the sixth bowl, the enemies of God and his people are assembled for battle on the great day of God the Almighty in a place called Armageddon. When the seventh bowl is poured out, there is a great earthquake. The great city is split into three parts. And then every island, we read, every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones About 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. Now a key point in these seven judgments is the intensification that happens as history moves closer to the end of the world. We don't know exactly what these symbols refer to. They are clearly judgments on a greater scale as we come closer to the end of the age, as well as we see this intensification in the battle between God and his enemies as we come closer to the end of the age. Chapter 16 emphasizes the justice of God in these judgments. In verses 5 and 6, an angel says, "'Just you are, O Holy One, who is and who was,' For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then verse 7, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. 
The text also emphasizes that these judgments do not cause people to repent. Verse 9 says of the wicked, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him the glory. And there's a message for the people of God in verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So God's people are called to stay awake. That's a very frequent exhortation in the New Testament. And so is the idea of being clothed. We are to put on Christ. We are to put on the virtues of Christian character. First Thessalonians 5 tells the Thessalonians, Paul there tells the Thessalonians to be sober and alert, ready for the return of Christ and to put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's what we're being called to do in this chapter in the book of Revelation. The great battle between God and the forces of evil as the judgments of God fall upon the wicked. We are to be awake and alert as to what is going on and to continue to pursue faith and love and hope as we worship God and as we celebrate his justice in his judgments upon the wicked. Now, it's a fair question to ask at this point, why is all this necessary? When we think of the fact that God is almighty and perfectly wise and gracious and merciful, we can wonder, could not God have figured out a way to pursue his purposes in creation and salvation in a way that did not involve so much judgment and wrath and suffering on the part of the wicked, let alone the suffering of his people. Could not God have found a kinder and gentler way to accomplish his goals? It's very significant that the perfected saints in heaven do not ask that question. They're worshiping God for his righteous deeds. Chapter 15, 3, great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. The saints in heaven see things much more clearly than we do, and they do not question God's ways. They worship him for them. One of the significant truths when we wonder about God's ways is the fact that his way of salvation through the suffering and death of Jesus involved great suffering on his part. There's the suffering of Jesus himself, Jesus' experience, the the wrath of God that we deserve so that we might be forgiven. And it must have been agonizing for the Father to inflict that suffering on his beloved son. Our salvation involved the suffering of God. The wrath of God that is behind these judgments on the wicked was poured out upon Jesus on the cross so that we might be forgiven. We may wonder why God didn't save anyone, but we do know that it cost him greatly to save those whom he chose 
for salvation. God could have justly condemned all of us, but he chose to save a people at great cost to himself. In the Exodus, in Exodus 33, in the story where Moses asks God to show him his glory, God says in verse 19 there, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The fact that history, as the book of Revelation interprets it and illuminates it, is the unfolding of God's plan. All of these judgments that we read of in the book of Revelation are in the scroll that is in the hand of the Lamb, and every one that happens happens as a result of a word from the throne. And the perfected saints in heaven sing of God's great and amazing deeds. There is much that we cannot understand. But we do not have to understand in order to trust. God's judgment upon the wicked is a good thing. It is reason for worship and praise. And all of what we read in the book of Revelation is to help us to stand fast, to endure, to remain faithful unto death. God does not explain everything to us, but he does assure us that if we trust him and follow his son, all will be well, both now and forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the comforts of this passage, for the verses that <clears throat> speak of your people before your throne, praising you. We thank you for the insight of how they praise you and what they praise you for. Lord, we are not so inclined to praise you for your judgments upon the wicked. And yet we see that the saints in heaven are. We pray that you would shape us more and more to be conformed to your word and what it emphasizes. And that you would help us to be faithful in our appropriation of your word and our reflection of it in our thoughts of you. Lord, we are grateful that this passage shows us that you are engaged in the battle, that you are almighty, and that the time is coming when all opposition will be put down. And we, we pray that you would encourage us with that, as even as we look around us in the world. Lord, we do long for the salvation of sinners. We do long that many people would be saved, but we know that there's also many who will not come. And we are grateful to know that you will send your judgment upon them, that that is part of your plan for the renewal of all things. And we pray that we may live in hope because of what you are doing. 
Help us to be shaped uh, by your word day by day and week by week. In Jesus' name, amen.